Good Physics Day, everyone. Today is a special release of Physics Alive. Two episodes for the price of one. That's right, twice is free. The 2021 American Association of Physics Teachers AAPT Summer Meeting is currently underway. And each year, a handful of physics educators are recognized for their contributions. Awards go by names such as the Orsted Medal, the Doc Brown Futures Award, the soon-to-be-renamed Millikan Medal, the Klopsteg Memorial Lecture Award, the Homer L. Dodge Citation for Distinguished Service to AAPT, the David Halliday and Robert Resnick Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Physics Teaching, and the Paul W. Zitzowitz Excellence in K-12 Teaching Award. I would love to have an opportunity, and the time, to interview each of these individuals. Well, there's a lot of daylight left this year, so it may still happen. But to get the ball rolling, I reached out to the two Excellence in Teaching awardees, and they graciously agreed to join me for these episodes. Both episodes are being released on August 1st, which just so happens to be the date that they are receiving their awards at the meeting and giving a plenary talk. So whether or not you have a chance to attend the meeting this summer, you'll be able to get a glimpse into their classrooms and hearts and learn why they have humbly earned such accolades. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. In this episode, episode number 26 of Physics Alive, I speak with the recipient for the 2021 David Halliday and Robert Resnick Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Physics Teaching, Anne Cox. She is a professor of physics at Eckerd College. This award is given in recognition of contributions to undergraduate physics teaching, and awardees are chosen for their extraordinary accomplishments in communicating the excitement of physics to their students. Previously, Anne has earned the Robert A. Staub Distinguished Teacher Award at Eckerd College, a Distinguished Service Award from the Florida AAPT section, a Distinguished Service Citation from AAPT, and was part of the 2020 Excellence in Physics Education Award for Open Source Physics. Let's get started exploring Anne's teaching world. Well, hello, Anne, and welcome to Physics Alive. Firstly, congrats on being awarded the 2021 David Halliday and Robert Resnick Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Physics Teaching. Thank you. And I often like to start with a moment of gratitude. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career, and what role have they played in shaping your path? So I have a a group that we call ourselves the Old Lady Physicists, or OLP for short. Well, you have um, your own acronym. Oh we do. Um, <laughs> and we were gathered together um, back in 2007, actually, and we've been meeting virtually since then. Um, and so uh, Barbara and Cindy are my um, OLP cohort. Um, and we are senior women faculty at small liberal arts colleges. So we have that in common and we share um, just everything about um, professional work, but also very early on, we um, found that we could talk about everything that was going on, whether we were having challenges with our kids or what. So it's it's been really an incredible experience to have peer mentors um, who know what I'm going through, who I say something and I start 
to say something about my intro physics class and they can finish the sentence mm. often. Um, so they're uh, a really terrific mentoring group. That sounds like a fantastic network to have. Did, did you call your old, yourself old ladies from the start? Um, we did. And I was the young, I'm the youngest in the group and I wasn't super comfortable with that to start with, but I've embraced it fully now. (laughs) Okay. So what is something that you believe to be true about good teaching and learning that other educators might disagree with? So there, there are a couple of things. I don't, I don't know that other educators wouldn't necessarily, um, agree with it, but I think, we um, think that we're the best way to explain things, uh, concepts to students. And I have to constantly remind myself, and I think it's true of other educators who are aware of how good students are at teaching each other, that we have to remind ourselves that students understand each other's struggles better than we do often, even though we're practiced at it and we've taught for many years, in my case, um, that doesn't mean I know all of the ways to say things. So sometimes it's best for me to be quiet and let another student in the class try to answer the question. And they come up with something that I might have said, but they say it in just a little bit of a different way that really helps um, their peers. So that's that's one of the things that I think is true about good teaching. And I don't think you would have a lot of pushback from other educators about that, but I think we say it, but then we don't live it. And that's mm-hmm. hard for me to live as well. But I think that's something that's that's true. I also think that sometimes I hear that students aren't as well prepared today as they were pick another day five years ago ten years mm-hmm. ago two weeks ago I don't know pick pick your pick your time frame um, and I think it's just that they're different and if we expect our students to be the same from year to year we're missing something and so we really need to teach the students that are in front of us not the students that came to us five years ago and in some ways we're always playing catch-up but to just throw them all into a bin and say they're just not as well prepared in some area is not really fair. They're prepared in different ways. That's a great point. And this, this is something that, that came up in a, a previous episode a little bit. And and one idea that came out of that was that, well, maybe they seem less prepared because uh, we're often teaching the same. I mean, we teach the same things over and over again. So we see the same problems over and over again. And we might start thinking, these students just aren't getting it, but they're new students every single year. But it's definitely not just that. It's, it's very much what you say that that everybody, students are coming in with a different set of skills um, than, than they were necessarily 20 years ago. And and we have to we have to adapt to teach to those sets of skills. So they're they have more of one thing and maybe less of another thing. So that's a right. great point. I mean, teaching is is fun if you're willing to teach the student that's in front of you instead of the mythical perfect student. Um, those don't come along. Mm-hmm. You have a great student sometimes, and then it's a real joy or a great class, and it's a real joy. And then you have a weaker class that's a struggle, and you really have to be more creative in addressing their needs. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah, you got to watch out for that perfect student because then they're just going to come and correct you all the time. And that, that's going to be annoying. <laughs> 
So you've received various honors throughout your career, uh, including a teaching award from your college in 2004, service recognition from AAPT in 2006 and 2008, and a group of a group award for open source physics last year, and now this award with AAPT in 2021. So clearly, students, fellow educators, and members of AAPT have taken notice of what you've brought to the world of physics education all these years. In reflecting on your career, what are some of the qualities that you find most important in your role as an educator? For me, I just really love what I do. Um, Physics teaching is fun, and that's hard for people who don't engage in this to really understand that I'm teaching intro physics every year. It's the same level. And if I were only teaching intro physics, I might have a different story. I get to teach the upper level um, courses as well. But I'm not, it's not the same students. So it's different every time. Um, so that's, that's, I think, crucial. You have to like what you do in order for there to be any buy-in from your students. And so I, I really do like what I do. Sometimes I'm more successful than others. <laughs> um, and, the, and, that's, and that's part of it. There are some days when it's really hard, when you just have um, a challenging group or it, it's just, it's a slog. Um, but in general, it's fun. You get to play with toys for your demonstrations. <laughs> uh, you get to see aha moments. It's, it's the greatest job as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> So um, I think that's that's the crux of of teaching physics for me. I like the subject. I think students can understand it, even though they come to me convinced they're not going to understand mm-hmm. it in many cases. And and so getting them from that place of I'm scared, I'm not sure I can succeed to the place where they actually can have some confidence. It's incredibly rewarding. I, I had an opportunity to speak with Brad Talbert this morning, uh, and he's he's the K through 12 award winner um, this year. And he, he had a, a similar uh, similar mentality that he just, he thinks physics is fun and he wants to share that, that fun with his students. So uh, that's and that's a very important part for me as well, that there that there can be a levity to what we do, that it's not this very serious thing that it's like, yeah, we're, we're pushing cars around and we're making graphs and we're having a good time and we're laughing and we're learning some things along the way. Yeah, I, there's something really empowering about tackling something that you think is very challenging and then succeeding in that, you know, that there's really nothing better than that in building people's self-confidence, right? If you're if you're challenge if you're tackling easy things and you understand it, well, it's just easy. So how hard was that to do? You don't have that sense of accomplishment. So in physics, we get the opportunity to really see students get a sense of accomplishment. So in order to get that accomplishment, let's uh, take a, a little sneak peek at your teaching life. Uh, so what does an average day or maybe an average week look like in your your classroom is there some kind of structure that guides the class yes it's really structured in many ways i require i mean my typical class if i think about intro or the upper level class um, if it's a class that has a laboratory component then if it's at all possible in the schedule then i blend lecture and lab so we go from mm-hmm. one to the other there's not an artificial break so we just have a set amount of time that we meet each week six hours a week and then when we have to go when we're ready for a lab we do an activity 
and they don't actually turn out to be the traditional length of a college three-hour lab. I might do a one-hour activity here, another day 45 minutes, and then another day maybe a two-hour block of time as it as it makes sense. Um, the the key to the in-class time is that I want students to be interactive. So as much as possible, students are going to be either reading an assignment in the book prior to class or watching videos. It's not officially flipped, I would say, because I can't help <laughs> but give some explanation in class, but I try to limit that. And so I tell my students, um, okay, I'm gonna do my 15 minutes and I'm going to try to watch the clock, and then you're going to do some work. Um, so you're not just sitting there. So I want it to be interactive, and it's going to be a mix of things. Problem solving on the board, uh, labs, uh, explaining demonstrations, um, doing simulations, uh, video analysis, whatever is appropriate, depending on, you know, whether we're in person or not. So, but well, yeah. that, but that <laughs> translated uh, better than I expected when we had to go online because I still kept that same approach. Um, it's just the resources were all online instead of mostly not not a lot of hands-on resources. Well, and you know what to do with breakout rooms at that point because yep. groups going into activities all the time, that that's what we have breakout tables in the classroom, really. Right, right, right. So are, so, are, you, in, are you in kind of a a formal studio type space? Do you actually have lecture and lab in the same space or do you, you kind of find a way to make it work for you? Well, we, we found, I found a way to sort of make it work. And then we got to renovate the building that um, I'm in and I pushed for uh, what what most people would recognize as a flexible studio space. Um, and so we I don't have to switch rooms. Um, I don't have built-in benches and um, and and so it's been great since we've had the new space before I was in a classroom that had benches and it was tight and we just did what we could. but um, in in renovating the space, we are in a studio space and some of my colleagues use it in a much more traditional format and then some of us do a, a closer to a studio format. Yeah, I'm always curious about different solutions that different schools have for for that because, I mean, you think the challenge at a large institution is, well, how, how could we do something like a scale up? Mm -hmm. But the challenge at a small institution is with lower enrollments, th there may be a little bit tighter scheduling and, uh, and maybe not enough faculty to, to cover having studio or, or modeling instruction type of style classes. So I'm always very interested in hearing what types of solutions um, folks have come up with. Yeah, it, it was a long time coming and we made a case for um, the additional space and um, also inventing our own time slots. Nobody gave us grief about that, but we have to work hmm. pretty closely <laughs> with our colleagues in chemistry and biology to make sure that when we invent time slots, their students can still take the other required courses that they need that they uh, often think are more important for physics because that's their major. Um, so yeah, it's always a balancing act at, at whatever institution you're in to figure most, it out. Most people aren't taking classes at 3 a.m. You'd have a lot of <laughs> yeah, pushback there. Yeah, I'm not there, teaching yeah. at 3 a.m. either. There's no oh, well, yeah, that's true. That's true. I forgot about that part. That's what the new hire is for. No, oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> 
So you've been involved with some impactful projects the last decade or two. One is Fizzlet Physics, uh, where Fizzlets are interactive physics simulations that are linked to guiding questions. That's my summary of them. Uh, another related project is Open Source Physics, which is a collection of curricular resources that engage students in physics, computation, and computer modeling. And both of these topics will be best served with their own episode one day. Uh, but for now, I'm more curious about your relationship to these projects. What drew you to focus on simulations and computation? And how does it keep you inspired? So what got me started in this was better use of technology. So when I started um, my teaching career um, in the mid 90s, um, just a long time ago, <laughs> I, I came to an institution that had just purchased computers. A lot of people sort of walked into something like that, and we wanted to make more use of them. And of course, we use them for data analysis with Vernier and Pasco equipment. Um, but I also wanted to see how to leverage it to um, do a better job making my teaching more interactive, not just use computers for labs. And so as a result, I really sort of fell into um, some of this work with the physics folks, with Wolfgang Christian and Mario Bologna in particular. Um, and what got me interested in it was as somebody who was trained as an experimentalist and teaching and wanting to sort of think about how you bridge experiment and theory and computational models really can, in a classroom setting, serve as a nice bridge. I don't ever want a simulation to be a substitution for a measurement, but a simulation can do such a nice job of really focusing, helping you focus on the concepts in a way that a static problem doesn't. So the simulations that are most successful are not ones that just, for me, ask students to just play around because students can play games all the time and they can learn some things, but I want it to be a little more directed and closer to a model of a laboratory setting. Like, here's some information I want you to find out about this simulated world. What are the tools that you need? What do you need to measure in order to do that? That helps you get ready for a laboratory experience. So that's sort of how I got interested in it. Um, and then it just took a life of its own because it's it's really, again, it's fun to do. Um, it's engaging. It's another way to engage students. And um, it just leads to if it's done well, I think it can really lead to a deeper and richer understanding. Um, there, uh, often it's more challenging for students, and so there's the frustration level you have to work around. Um, but it's it's a really good way to get students to really pay attention to what you think are the important features to the physics, and it's also fun to model things with bad physics, not real physics, mm -hmm. um, and then have students analyze and say, and you just say, what's wrong with this? What 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 model uh, is this built on? Um, mm -hmm. Because you can build models that go along with the kinds of misconceptions that students bring into the classroom. So you can put that in their face and say, hey, what's wrong here? Um, so it, it allows you to do some additional things. So what are some examples of how some of this shows up in your classroom today? What what kind of pieces of this do you um, still use? So the pieces that I use, um, 
because I'm using mostly a studio format, I can go from sort of whiteboard working problems to, okay, here's a, a Fizzlet um, problem or a video analysis or some sort of open source simulation that we're going to take some measurements on. Um, and, or it can be a lab, it can be a pre-lab. It, it really varies pretty dramatically. I see them as just a tool along with another suite of tools that we have. So if I want to ask somebody to solve a problem, it's it's more engaging if it's an animated problem, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so if I wanna get people ready for a laboratory setup, then I can set up the, um, I can use a simulation that does that. Sometimes I use it in um, the preparation for class. Sometimes I use them as homework assignments. It really just varies. Do you use FETs? I do. I do use them as well. Yeah, I like them too. I I use them um, as demonstrations in particular um, because they're more open-ended. Um, so they work nicely for demonstrations and you can set up mini labs with them as well. So yeah, I, I use them. I use Tracker as my video analysis out of open source mm -hmm. physics, but I also use Pivot Interactives. It, it just oh, depends. Oh my, you use everything, goodness. <laughs> well, I try not to use everything in one semester. So it really mm -hmm. depends on what's going on in a particular semester. You know, this last year in COVID, I really streamlined everything down. I tried not to use everything because I don't want mm -hmm. students to spend too long on platforms, but it doesn't take them long to get up to speed on something. So anything that's new and fun with technology, I'll give it a try, I think. I'm a little bit afraid of this podcast in general for me being sort of like a candy store of, oh, oh, I went that, I went that, I went that. And that's that's not effective either. At some point right. you find what are the tools that work best with what you're trying to do. So right. it's not starting with the tools and now let me design a class, but I want to, this is what I want to do in my class. What What tools can best help get me there? And there's probably multiple that will do that. Right. And so certainly when teaching through COVID, I really, like I said, narrowed down. Um, but then also when I was thinking about my physics one versus my physics two, what's, what are the appropriate tool sets there? And then as I go to the sophomore level, you know, waves, modern physics type class, what tools am I going to use there? So I tried to think about that instead of doing the candy. Although sometimes you can't help yourself. <laughs> There's one that you really just want to use and you haven't taught that they haven't seen that interface before and you're like that's okay it's worth the mm -hmm. five minutes that it's going to take them to learn what they need to because this is so great so i want to jump to another passion that you have which is advocating for women in physics and i feel like this might link back a little bit to this this network that you talked about at the beginning so uh, this started in your undergraduate studies, where you were the only woman to graduate with a physics degree in your class. And I have a feeling that's probably not changed all that much since then. Although I just talked with the Step Up folks uh, last week. So it looks like there are some great things going on uh, in, in that realm. So, But now this has uh, evolved to an interest in mentoring, uh, specifically mentoring for women physicists in small colleges like yours. Your most recent grant was titled Mutual Mentoring to Reduce Isolation in Physics. I'd like to learn a little more of your story around this work and what changes to mentoring you've explored. Yes, so um, the mentoring uh, uh, OLP, the old lady physicist group, <laughs> um, that 
that really did fall into my lap. Um, it was a an NSF project that was actually put together by a group of chemists and NSF said, you have to go beyond chemists. And they said, okay, we'll have one physics group. And they were looking at <laughs> senior women at small liberal arts colleges. And so they put together, we don't know how they put us together, this group of senior women uh, in physics at small liberal arts colleges. But when we saw each other, we were like, they're only, we only know of a handful of others who would fit in this category at that mm -hmm. time. Um, and so our senior group had a, you know, 20 year span of uh -huh. ages <laughs> um, or so. Um, and, um, and so when, when I got the first email, it was sort of like a, wait, I'm a senior member. I mentor junior faculty. I mentor students all the time. Do I really need a mentor? Did somebody turn me in? Um, <laughs> did the dean say, hey, she needs a mentor? <laughs> How did I get on this group? Um, and in meeting, uh, we found out that we were missing something we were missing and mm. i would say most people not just women and i wouldn't say women in physics i think everybody can be served by having mentoring beyond when they first enter a field you know we we talk about mentoring students and our undergraduates and then graduate students and then maybe mentoring postdocs and maybe even junior faculty but then after that mentoring seems to just end mm -hmm. and it's not like you're gonna you're gonna stop growing you you've got to figure out sometimes you have to change directions in your research sometimes you have to change how you're teaching uh sometimes you have to step into a departmental chair role and we don't provide much support for that so in conversations with this group we found it so valuable and really so surprising that it was valuable um that we decided our our group um that was originally five decided three of us decided that we would write a grant to extend this to other women who were isolated so it wasn't just small colleges but also um it had to be at college level so we couldn't extend it to high school because of the the grant project we were a part of um but we decided to try to extend this to now women who are isolated by virtue of any number of things. So we've got a group that is a group of astronomers that work in blended, either they're called physics departments or physics and astronomy departments, but they're often, you know, one of two astronomers in a department. Mm -hmm. We have um, two groups that are at two-year colleges. We have groups that are, were pre-tenure when we started our grant project. Most of them have gotten tenure now. We have some who are mid-career with young children and then some who are senior women who want to do outreach. So the idea was to collect groups of women in physics together at different institutions um, to serve as peer mentors to each other. It's not like we're going to put one old person in with younger people <laughs> um, and that person's going to be the sage and, and guide everybody. The idea was that we can learn from each other. And what we found with our groups at this point, um, particularly during COVID, is that they really value not only just having each other, but 
knowing what's happening at other institutions. You know, mm-hmm. we were all mm-hmm. sort of just going it alone all at once. And these groups had somebody they were scheduled to talk to in two weeks and <laughs> could say, how is your institution handling this? What are you doing about stopping the tenure clock? What kinds of things are you doing now that you're locked out of the lab? How are you handling um, kids running around in the background? What what kinds of things are you doing? And so this, this project has reinforced just the experience that we've heard from women who are participating in it has really reinforced the idea that we all need to have somebody we can talk to about our professional life and there's a real value to talking to somebody at a similar in a similar situation at a similar institution at about the same uh point in your career trajectory because that gives you sort of a common language um a resonant phenomenon if you like Mm. (laughs) Um, i like yes (laughs) and and so so we're trying we're getting to the end of this project and we're we're now thinking about how do we extend this how do we extend it beyond physics um how do we continue it within aapt we don't have answers for that but it's a surprisingly low cost way to help people stay in physics. I mean, basically the grant pays for people when you can meet in person again to actually gather and meet, say at help fund part of the cost of going to a professional meeting to meet in person with your network. This, I mean, I found myself just kind of like nodding to being like, this sounds absolutely amazing for, for so much of this. I, I wonder if, uh, if along the way you'll 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 publish or maybe not even publish is the right word, but just have available kind of the the structure of how you go about setting up those groups so that they are they are groups that will work well. How to get commitment from people and and what each of those sessions looks like because I feel like if if there's a way that this session is is kind of shown to be valuable every time and there's kind of a structure to it, it could help it could help make it easier to manage and. Uh, and keep bringing people back again and again. So I'm curious if that's something that would be made available. We've given um, a couple of talks at APT meetings, and we've just published an article in a journal that physicists aren't very aware of, but it's the Journal of Faculty Development. So it's uh, read by deans of faculty development because we thought that was the place that we might have more impact in setting up these more institutionally wide. That is sort of the nuts and bolts of how um, to put these groups together and what they do. And we weren't we're not very prescriptive about how um, they organize themselves. So we have some groups that never meet actually synchronously um, via Zoom, which would be your sort of natural go-to. Don't mm-hmm. you all meet via Zoom? And, and some groups do, but some have a group me uh, text that they just uh, share when things come up. Some One group has an asynchronous Google Doc that they every week somebody posts a question of the week and everybody has to make comments and then it's a living document that people comment and say yay hooray you got this thing published or oh yeah my water heater broke too you know or whatever um it whatever the issues are but everybody the the reason i think it works so well is that you have a built-in support system that's just wants you to succeed There's not competition Mm -hmm. because you're not at the same institution. You're not vying for the same resources. So 
all you have are, you know, you have no motivation other than to say, yay, you did this. This is great. You know, and when was the last time that you told your dean no to something? You know, that <laughs> those are really good questions to hear from somebody. Connected to the work I'm doing with the podcast, I've, I've been learning a little bit more about the business world. And I've recently learned about these things that are called masterminds. And it actually sounds very similar to, to what I'm hearing here. And is why I was asking about a bit of a structure, because with these masterminds, you find people who are doing work that's similar to what you're doing in a particular business, but not quite the same thing. Uh, and people who are kind of at a similar level to each other. And and they're just there to support each other. They're there to to provide encouragement, to to put you occasionally on the hot seat to say, it's like, okay, here's what's going on in here. We're going to try to help you through what you're doing and and try to to call you out if you're slacking off on something, because if you really want to push forward and, you know, there it's all about, you know, making as much money as you can. It's, it's, it can be a little more low key in, in education, but, um, but not always. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Maybe we'll have to borrow the uh, language from business. Uh, so I've been focusing on some of your your bigger projects, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to share something else you're working on. One of the things along the lines of fun in physics is that, um, and a lot of physicists are doing this, but I've just been enjoying uh, being a part of a growing makerspace on the campus. So I'm the faculty sponsor mm. of my campus makerspace, which is fun. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll learn new skills each year just to keep me current with my makerspace. Um, and so that's been a, a fun thing to do, but it's also made me think more about outreach um, to the community. I've done for six or seven years, maybe more. Um, we didn't do it, of course, uh, last summer, or this summer, but a summer camp um, for middle school students. So a residential on-campus outreach program. And so I'm interested in sort of going and exploring how that kind of outreach in terms of a, so the camp was a physics and chemistry focused um one year was the year of the electron one year was the year of light or you know the catch the wave i think we called it for the light because mm -hmm. we're on the water ocean so that's our that was our light themed one and then we had one on each year we've had one on thermodynamics um so that's that's the more academic side but what i'd like to do is think about how we in the physics community can leverage the informal education that a lot of people have done a great job of and tie that to what can happen in a makerspace to help build mm -hmm. um, sort of middle school age students confidence in doing things hands-on getting getting some experience using tools and thinking about you know sending a a makerspace like truck out into the community and and do some kind mm. of work like that so i haven't done any of that yet i'm just trying to think about how to marry those two interests that I already have of the middle school outreach and the makerspace and how we in the physics community can, I mean, we've done a lot of that, but how we can better connect it to uh, younger students so that coming into a lab will feel really familiar to them and like a home space instead of a, uh, oh, I don't remember what this tool is called. And then they can feel already at a disadvantage, right? If they don't know the name of the tool or that a tool exists for something, then they're already at a disadvantage and coming into a lab is going to be addition, have an additional barrier for them. 
So now if they break their lab equipment, they can fix it themselves. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's the job, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, that's a that's a great project. I mean, these makerspaces are really sort of coming into their own now, and and I think physics is is a perfect place to start introducing them and and some of the engineering aspects. And of course, none of us physicists are really trained all that much as engineers, so there's there's more we need to learn there. But is, is there going to be a a, a makerspace workshop for AAPT? Is that something that happens? I think there have been some in the past. Um, I've that's a good question, though. I don't, I don't know a makerspace-focused one. I know that it gets connected to the advanced labs effort, which I'm also involved in with AAPT. So there are some folks who are involved in an advanced labs because they are um, the lab support uh, folks at larger institutions. So they often are tied in with the makerspace as well. But it would be probably a good idea to to have something that's more explicitly makerspace um, focused for physicists to say, what should a physicist be doing with a makerspace to integrate what can happen in the curriculum and leverage it? All right. I'll put my listeners on that one. There you go. <laughs> there you, have a task. you go. Somebody out there who's really excited about that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'd like to tie up our conversation about your experiences and projects by reimagining the future. What do you hope to see next in the world of physics education? So what I hope to see next in the world of physics education would be success in advancing diversity in physics. Um, I want to see a world where any student who is interested in physics um, feels like they could belong. We have a really long way to go. We've not done a good job figuring out how to make physics a welcoming field to a wide range of, of students, a wide population. I'm fond because <laughs> Because I grew up at the age of, of Star Wars, I like the acronym JEDI for justice, <laughs> equity, diversity, and inclusion. So I kind of want us all to be JEDIs, right? That oh, nice. we, work for, <laughs> we work and become JEDIs. Um, uh, it's a little cheesy, but I really like it. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that's what I would like us to see. And, and people are making some really good efforts in those directions. Um, but I think as a community, we have so much further to go, and it's going to take all of us working on it to figure out how to make choices in our classrooms, to make them more welcoming, to really think about how to make sure our students feel like they belong, um, how we make them feel like they belong at our institutions, at higher education, how we make them feel, how we make people feel like they belong in STEM, that it's not just this, oh, STEM, physics, this is hard. It's hard, but everything is hard at a higher level, you know? It's not harder than other things. Um, and so we've got to get rid of this, physics is the hard, tough subject. We need to be welcoming. Um, and part of that for me is about 
trying to think about how to make it approachable. Um, and part of that is about being fun, which we've always had, but then thinking beyond that, thinking about how we demystify sort of the myth of physicists are the big brains. That's not true. We're just people who are interested in these kinds of things, but that doesn't, it doesn't mean there's a special ability there. Yeah, and, and it this definitely connects in with, with kind of the the fear of math that many people have, and there's and that's a, I definitely want to do some more episodes about that. I, I've made my own little episode about it, but I would like to definitely talk to people who who do research in that field. So, uh, I think there's definitely a connection there. But that's a definitely a, a great a great vision for the future, and I hope we can keep making strides on that. And I hope to definitely keep inviting guests on the show who who can talk about those sorts of things as well better than I can. Great. So. Um, anyway, Anne, thank you very much for speaking with me. This has been uh, a pleasure. I've I've learned a lot along the way. I have some things I want to look up. And uh, uh, congratulations on your award this year. Well, thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks. There's nothing like a couple of physics teachers giggling and having fun, right? I feel like I say this so often, but I really enjoyed my conversations with Anne this episode and Brad Talbert in the previous one. For my regular interviews, I focus on some bit of research or a particular specialty that the person brings to the teaching world. But for these past two conversations, I focus instead on the person and what they were bringing to their classroom and to their students on a daily basis. I feel like that helped me, and hopefully you, connect with them a little bit more as a human being in this very human and personalized thing called teaching that we do. To learn more about Anne, to read her AAPT bio for the award, or to check out the article on peer mentoring networks that we talked about, visit the show notes page on your podcast app or visit physicsalive.com slash HR21 for the Halliday and Resnick Award. So that's physicsalive.com slash HR21. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter and Physics Alive page on Facebook. You can reach me there or at brad at physicsalive.com. If you enjoy the show, leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. These ratings help put Physics Alive on the radar so that other educators can find it. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired by Anne's teaching journey. Today's action step? Reach out to a peer you haven't talked to in a while and send them a message. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you experience a few weeks of summer rest and rejuvenation, and be well.